We're going to allude to the scriptures today. There's just simply too much to read at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, so I will direct your attention to Nehemiah chapter 9. Last week we started on this, and if you have been with us uh, for any amount of time at all, uh, you'll know that we are headed toward the end of Nehemiah, completing the series Ezra, then Esther, then Nehemiah, coming to the end of the Old Testament uh, history, and then we'll move to uh, the New Testament after that. But this, this chapter has been so rich for me personally, um, and uh, I had a different way of approaching it as I was preparing two weeks ago and then changed it. Uh, from about 15 points to two. And uh, so there you see it in front of you, two very stark contrasts, and I trust that this is going to be uh, a time that is similar to what the Israelites um, experienced in Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 9. With that, uh, let me pray, and uh, then we'll enter into the study of God's Word. Father, uh, this is all about you. It, it has been from the very beginning of our time together of corporate worship. It has been since we arrived at this place. Today, it has been a time when we have put aside our own preferences and our own desires, and Lord, we have sought you, and you, you have spoken to us already because your word has been already prayed, it's been sung, and now hopefully it's going to be proclaimed. Uh, Lord, I, I do not ever pretend that my words alone and the interpretation will be of any consequence, but only your word that is attended by your Holy Spirit uh, to put your word into hearts that I, I pray are prepared not only to hear and take in intellectually, but to respond to for true heart and life change. And so, Lord, that's why we come to this time, and we pray for a divine anointing to be upon this hour as we look at two very, very important things that grow out of Nehemiah chapter 9. We thank you and we praise you for this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll remind you that this is a time of revival for the people of Israel. If you go back into chapter 8 and you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that it was the men, it was the men of Israel who led the charge. They led the entire assembly to do something very profound and yet very simple. They called Ezra to read God's word to them. And what happened as a result of that, as a result of the reading of the Word, was nothing less than a revival. It's what uh, I used to call, still call it sometimes, for individuals who have a fresh experience with God through His Word. And, and some of you have been involved in something like this. It was a come-to-Jesus meeting. It was a time of the people hearing and doing more, as I mentioned in my prayer, than just taking the Word of God into their heads, but they took it into their hearts. And here's what we see in chapter 9. This is profound, and I mentioned last week that, that we don't see this a lot in our churches. I, I just haven't. 
But they do something at the beginning, the very beginning of chapter 9. They look at themselves and they look back to the past and they confess their sins and the iniquities, not only that they had, but the iniquities of their fathers. Now, confession, and we'll use that word, and we're going to come to a place in our service. I'm not quite sure exactly what that's going to look like, but we're going to come to a place of stopping and doing exactly what they did, confessing. Confessing means basically, and you might just jot this down or remember it, it just simply means to agree with God. That's all confessing means. You agree with God that He is God and that He is holy and that we have sinned against Him. When He says that, then we agree with Him. And so we're going to be looking at that for the next few minutes. But they didn't stop there. They went further in their confession. And here's where the second part of our message is going to be so vitally important. They not only confessed that they were sinners before a holy God, And that had led them into a a bondage, an iniquity kind of a situation. And we'll look at that. But very quickly, they also confessed the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God that had forgiven and was ready to forgive them again. No matter how much the children of Israel have sinned, and we're going to see this in their history, they recount the history. Going back, God was always there, and even more than what they deserved, and more than what they thought. Here's a good summary verse, 38 verses, and this is, by the way, this is one big prayer. The Levites led in this prayer, the priests led in this prayer, but but if there is a key verse, and we're going to jump to the New Testament parallel of this, here it is. And, and all throughout this, let me, let me put a parenthesis here. Every time I talk about Israel, remember Israel foreshadowed the church and coming out of, of the bondage of Egypt and then going through the wilderness and God provided for them, going into the promised land. That is a picture of us and being led out of bondage of the sin and into salvation through Jesus Christ. So just remember that. Every time we talk about Israel, try your best to apply that to yourselves, okay? So they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they, and this this is a really good picture, they stiffened their neck, it's used twice, and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But... Somebody has said but the, that the two greatest words in the Bible are but God. I am so glad that there was a but God in my life. And I am so glad that there continues to be because I'm not done sinning. Not that I want to, but until I get into heaven, I need every day the but God of the gospel. And so that's why this is so precious. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Aren't you glad that we serve a God like that? Here's the New Testament parallel. It's said in just a sentence, Romans 5.20, where sin 
did abound. Where sin increased, what happened? Grace abounded, not just abounded, but all the more did abound. And again, this is us. Uh, Sometimes people have asked me, why do you preach through books of the Old Testament? I've shared this over and over again, but it's always a good reminder, and there are enough people that are new that need to be reminded of this fact. Here's, Here's how we plug in the Old Testament to the New Testament. Paul reminded the Corinthian church that everything he was teaching them had a place out of the Old Testament. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not, and we're going to see this again in a minute when when, when, uh, the, the Levites recount the history of Israel, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Just a reminder, this has to do with the creation of the golden calf. and So they worshiped before the golden calf, and they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And then let's go on, because the next several verses remind us again of the same thing. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. This is for us, folks on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, and in case we're tempted ever to just throw aside those pictures of the Old Testament, the stories of the Old Testament, as if it couldn't happen to us, oh, I would never bow down before a golden calf. I would never sit down to eat and drink and raise up to to play. Therefore, anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. So, we learn a great deal uh, from them. And here, here's the question that I've, I've in, in studying this, that has come to my mind over and over again. I, I confessed to you last week, I have no idea what this might look like. God brought a revival to Israel through the Word. It was a revival through Reformation. And I'm looking out and I, I see a bunch, I, I see great folks for the most part. And we all, we all struggle with, with the, the sin that remains, just like Paul did. But I've been wondering, what would it look like if God brought a revival? If, if I am truly being faithful, and I want to be with all my heart, to preaching the Word of God and drawing the applications that we need out of that, could God bring a revival t- to you? To begin with, it always starts with the individual. Could God bring a revival through the reformation of the word to your marriage? Could God bring a revival to your family and and our church? And could that spill over? Could that impact our community? Could that impact our nation? Do you need revival? Does your marriage need revival? Does your family need revival? Does our church need revival? I I don't think you want me to be satisfied with, and I don't want you to be satisfied with a good church, a nice church. 
and that's all well and good. I want us to look to the Word of God and to be revived as the Word of God comes to bear upon our lives. And so if we allow the Holy Spirit to take His Word and open up our hearts, and if we truly, here it is again, confess, we were singing about this, and we were talking about this earlier, confess and repent of our own defections, the answer is yes, we would experience a renewal of God's grace in our lives. But what do we do first? We've got to go back, and that's what the children of Israel did in order to learn how, listen to me, how not to live. They went back into their past history, and and I believe that we as followers of Christ can look at this and we can remember back. This is not dredging up old things that have already been forgiven. Everything has been forgiven, but this is a remembrance of how we have defected, so we quickly run to the cross and we see the grace of God. And so in this next section, under the first point, it's going to be kind of a, a walk through a, a, a dark hallway. It, it, it's not going to be, I was trying to think of, can I say anything funny to maybe lighten it up? I, I don't think anything funny needs to be said. It just needs to be walked through. And and we see the, the depth of the defection and, and the sin and the iniquity in their hearts. And then we look for it in our own. And we confess it and we turn away from it. Now let me say this too. We read through this and here's a tendency we have. I didn't sin the way they did. I know that. I don't know of any of you who have a golden calf in your house. But at the same time, each of us has defected. What, what were some of the words to the song we just, it's an old song. But uh, I looked ahead to see the songs we were singing, and I was grabbed as I knew that I was going to be preaching on this, prone to wonder. It's me. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, now, now look at this, there, there's this, this struggle going on. Prone to leave the God, the very God I love. I don't know how many times I've been talking about this kind of thing with people and someone, usually it's a, it's a nominal Christian or a non-Christian, or maybe sometimes a Christian who's growing, and they'll say something like this, well, you know, Pastor, I'm not perfect. And I get it. I know that you're not perfect. It's quite the opposite. Let me use a word that is a theological word. You are totally depraved. That doesn't mean that you're as evil and wicked as you could be. It just means that you're fallen outside of Christ, in all of your nature. Jesus is the only one who is perfect. He's the only one who never sinned. He's the only one who always kept all of the commandments of God, and you and I have not. So let me define two terms and kind of show you for that time in just a few minutes that we're going to stop and we're going to be confessing. 
and repenting. And uh, just let the Holy Spirit work in this. First of all is sin. He mentions sin, okay? What is sin? Sin is when we rebel against God's law. Sin is defiance of God's law. And, and well, I went back to this. There is not a righteous man on earth. I was going to say Jesus. Here it is. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who commits sin breaks the law, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is the breaking of the law of God. So that's what sin is. It says they stiffened their neck. Not only did they sin, did they break the divine law. And by the way, you can just look at the Ten Commandments. And we have defied God on all of those counts. But he adds something here. But they and their fathers acted arrogantly. And, and by the way, do you know where else that's used? In this same general location, it's used of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. They stiffened their necks. They acted arrogantly, and they did not obey his commandments. So here the Israelites are identifying with the same sin that the Egyptians were guilty of. They weren't saying, I'm the exception, but I've fallen into that as well. Now watch this, because this is going to lead us to another side, and it's all sin. But there is the kind of sin that we allow to continue in our lives it not only affects us, it affects those that come after us. Now, last week I shared that, 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 that you will not pay for the sins of the fathers. The fathers are not going to pay for the sins of the sons. But I want you to see this, that there is a sense in which unconfessed sin, unrepented of sin, can get a foothold and be passed down. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This has to do with idolatry. Visiting the iniquity, sin that is allowed to remain, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Now, a lot of people will stop there, but they shouldn't. What does it say right after that? To the third and fourth generation of who? Those who hate me. The picture is here of, 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 of a, a person who has allowed sin to gain that foothold, it becomes a part of their identity. It becomes a part of who they are. And somehow that particular thing can be passed on to the next generation of those who also hate God. Have you ever noticed how that many times when there is wickedness in a family, the next generation, maybe not in exactly the same way, but they adopt the same kind of lifestyle and iniquity. Here's why it's so important, and here's why we need to come to a place every day where we confess our sins and iniquities. When you give yourself over to a sin, and you do that over and over again, then you have fallen into iniquity. And sometimes you don't even know it, 
but it defines you. That sin that you've allowed to remain unconfessed and unrepented of, it defines you. And it can become so consuming that your identity is tied up with it. This is what happens when you continue in unrepented sin. He who is often reproved and yet stiffens his neck. This is a scary place to be in. That's why I said this, this walk through this particular part of, of chapter 9 is kind of dark. He who is often reproved and yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Here's a list. This is in two slides. Now, this is not exhaustive. It's not the only list that's found in the Scripture. But, but we need to see how sin, a sin unrepented of, can become a course of life. And this is why it is so important. Do you not know? He's talking about a particular class of people, but look at the sins that are involved. I'm not picking on any one sin. Any one of these things can become a foothold if you normalize it and you become identified with it. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? However you want to put that into your theological pipe and smoke it, that's what it says. Don't be deceived. Don't just say, once saved, always saved. Please look at the Scripture. He is speaking to a group of Christians. He's not saying you can lose your salvation because we do not believe the Bible teaches that. But he is saying, take sin seriously. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Are there sins in the church of sexual immorality? Yes. Nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me just stop and say here, because I've heard this from some preachers. Some of these are more serious than the others. God shouts about some and whispers about the other. Listen. He shouts about all of these. These are all serious defections from God. Let's go on in this passage of Scripture. Well, I thought I had it on two slides. I didn't. Let's look at the reality of what God has done in us. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul dealt with this. He was a new creation in Christ, and yet in Romans 7, it says over and over again that he struggled deeply with the sin that remained. And that's the operative word. Did you hear that? He struggled with it. He refused to let it dominate him. He refused to let it become a habit that would define him as a Christian. In fact, he refused to make peace with his sin. And he says in Romans chapter 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to, 
to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen said we must be mortifying, killing the flesh, or it will be killing us. If you've got your Bibles open, let, let me just direct you to a couple of verses that, that feed into this before we get to uh, switching gears to our, our, our next point. Verse 17, look, look at this. We've already referred to it as a key verse, but I want to look back to it because I think it is so important. It says, they refused to obey. They were not mindful. I, 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 want to, I just want to pick up on that phrase of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader. I want to pick up on that too, to return them to their slavery in Egypt. Wow. Did you, did you get that? They were not mindful of the wonders, stiffened their neck, appointed a leader to do what? Take them back to Egypt? Had God not already appointed a leader? Moses, who is a type of Christ to lead them out of sin, And I thought to myself, and we've looked at this verse so many times, but doesn't it remind you of what Paul says in the New Testament? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves leaders, teachers, to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And what did that grow out of? It grew out of them not being mindful of what God had done on their behalf. And the picture here is it didn't just like whoops, it slipped their minds. But they looked at the work that God had done. And what had he done? Just, just several things as, as we look at the wandering in the wilderness. He had fed them with manna. He had give them, given them water from the rocks. He had let their clothes not wear out. It wasn't that this slipped from their memory. It's that they looked at that, not being mindful, they looked at that and it just lost its value because they were looking at their situation, which was hard, and they forgot how hard it was back in Egypt. They were ungrateful. Ungrateful for the manna, ungrateful for the water, ungrateful for the clothes not wearing out, ungrateful for the shoes and for the, the feet not swelling. Instead, here's what they said, I want more. And I'm dissatisfied. God, I'm impatient. God, with you and with your plan. And I'm also impatient with God's chosen leadership, Moses. And so I want to go back to Egypt. Now, 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 just think about this. The hardest experience that the Israelites ever had was in Egypt. And they look at their situation, which was not ideal. I, I get it, in the wilderness. It's like spending 40 years in West Texas, I, I, you know. Wow, there's more of nothing. 
in that part of the world? Amazing. But they want to go back to slavery. Galatians 4, Paul says this, formerly. See, I'm toggling back and forth from the Old Testament. Here's a picture of Israel. Zoom, we go up to the New Testament, and we see the exact same thing happening. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. All of those ten gods that we showed a week or so ago. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back? Again, to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. And he's talking to Christians. I, I, I would guess that everyone in this room has a family member who at one time professed faith in Christ and they've slipped into this slavery mode again. Why? Because they were not mindful and because they lost the idea, the value of what God had done for for them and they chose to go back to slavery in Egypt. Now, I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. When you look at this, I hope you, you have the same reaction that I do. Sin is stupid. Sin is moral insanity, but we do it anyway. And some slip back into that mode of being enslaved. They, again, listen, the easiest time for you to not value what God has done in your life is when you are in a season of hard things, like in the wilderness. And it's so easy to be impatient with God and God's plan. God, do you even have a plan? Maybe going back would be the best thing for me to do. Don't start with your situation and then try to work your way to figure God out. Always start with God, with the affirmation that God is God and God is good, and then come to your situation. You may not figure it out, but that will be, I think, a benefit for you. One pastor said it like this, be willing to wait for God in the unplanned place and to walk with God at the unplanned pace. Look at verse 26. I, I, we're, we're, get, we're getting to a little uh, point where we're going to stop here in just a minute. They were disobedient. They rebelled against you, cast your law behind their back killed your prophets who lovingly warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed great blasphemies, great provocations. This is tied with the, the, the building of the golden calf and all of the rest of the things, but I, I, I was struck by that word. The things that we do against God are not small. And and we excuse ourselves. We say, well, I'm the exception. Solomon tried that. didn't work very well for him. And it doesn't work very well for us. These things, the great blasphemies, contemptible, terrible, mocking, 
And not only did they make an, an idol, a golden calf, but wonder of wonders, look at what they said. And it says it right here in the history. We go back to this. Aaron received gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf. But the, the, the great blasphemy was not just in the idol. It was in their attitude about God and about the idol. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. If you're, and this is just a little, a little thing, so we might be able to kind of understand. Have you ever done something that you knew you did it and someone else was given credit for it? Any, has that ever happened to anyone other than me? How did you feel? Great blasphemy. Well, you felt like, well, what? And the person who's saying that is actually mocking. And that's exactly what was going on. Now, again, what are we looking at? We're looking at the defection of the Israelites, but we're overlaying that upon our own defection from the Lord our God. And the rest of the history of Israel is just a vicious cycle of prosperity brought by God and then forgetting God, declining into sin and being given over to the adversaries until they cried out to God. And what did God always do? What did God always do in the book of Judges? He always was there. He always delivered them, even though they couldn't fully break the cycle until the Savior came. Now, do you know what time it is? Depending on your age, you're going to have a different answer for that. It's time to stop and do what the Israelites did and confess and repent. And that's going to be a very individual thing. I, I, again, this is not what we normally do in a church service. and You, you may not be able to think of anything, and that, that's okay. But I, I think that during these few moments of, of silence, it might be good for you to just ask the Holy Spirit to take what we've talked about thus far. And maybe He already has. Maybe there's something from this last week or today or, or from the past that it would just be good for you to confess. Now, what is confession? It's agreeing with God. It's not trying to gain approval with God. That, that approval was already won on the cross. All of your sins are forgiven. But it's good for us to confess to God, God, I agree with you. You're holy and I'm not. And I sinned against you. I sinned against a brother or a sister. And I'm, I'm receiving afresh and anew that forgiveness that you've given on the cross of Calvary. So let's just take a minute. You, you can close your, close your eyes, bow your heads. I'm going to give you silence in the middle of a sermon so that you and I can confess and repent.
Father, we acknowledge you and we acknowledge that there could be some incredible breakthroughs in lives that are here today. This is not something that uh, we're, we're trying to work up. This is something that we are trying to look at your word and be responsive to what may not be a precept, may not be a, a law that we have to do, but Lord, certainly it is an example. And so I pray we would humble ourselves, agree with you where we have sinned, and then repent, turn away from that sin. In Jesus' name I pray, we pray, amen. Oh boy, I, to, to, to those who might feel that it's weird, I feel like it's weird too. Never done this. I, I just see it in scripture, I want, I want revival in my own life, my own marriage, my own family. Uh, Revival doesn't mean that you become perfect. It just means you're, you have a fresh experience with the living God through his word. And we don't excuse it. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? By no means. We move to dying to sin instead of living in it. Let's move to the second point, though. Uh We've confessed our own sin, our own iniquity before God. And let's look at the second point on your outline, God's goodness and faithfulness. Let's confess something else. In other words, let's agree with God. that God will always forgive. Now, that almost sounds so trite, But it may not be for, for, for someone here. I, I remember years ago talking to a, a guy in my church, and he was, a, he was one of our deacons. That, that means that he was probably one of, the, one, of the, one of our best men. And we were sitting and talking, and he was telling me about things that he had done, and he said these words. He said, Pastor, I know Jesus has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. You ever heard somebody say that? And I thought for a minute, and I thought, oh my, what do I say that can help this guy? And so I looked at him and I said, Jim, congratulations. You've just placed yourself above God. And he was shocked. And we had a relationship where I could say that to him, okay? That might have been offensive to someone else. But he said, well, no, no, I haven't. I said, yes, you have. Because God said he has already forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself, so you must be putting yourself up above God. In chapter 9 of Nehemiah, there are eight verses. I know it's beyond the numbers, but there are eight verses that deal with our sins. There are 27 verses that deal with the mercy and the grace of God. 
Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. No matter how deeply you have sinned, grace is always greater. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God and such we are. God is patient with you, not willing for any to perish but for all to reach repentance. Peter reminds us, and don't you know that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. All of this is rooted in God's character, His great grace, His great mercy, and then it's displayed for all to see in the love and the care for His people. Everybody knows the story of the prodigal son, don't you? Here's a perfect picture. The, the son was, was with his father in his father's house. He had everything. But the allurement, I don't know what was working in his mind, the allurement of the world came in, and it was so strong that he decided that he would go and live in the pig pen. But he came to his senses. And really, when I look at it, the story is not, not first about the son who sinned. It's about the father who received him back. And so I would say, first of all, that if there is anyone here today and you've plumbed the depths of sin, you've gone so far that you might be like my friend, thinking to yourself, I've sinned too badly. I can't forgive myself, and I'm wondering if God can forgive me. God's grace will go beyond your sin, even your deepest sin, so that like the Son, you can go back to the Father, and He can receive you and restore to you the joy of your salvation. Let me ask you to bow your heads and You've gone through and you've already confessed, I hope, and repented of your sins. I hope that in this brief time of just looking at the wonder of God's mercy and His grace and the story of that, that you've come to a place, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, of saying, I repent of my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ who forgives sin. And if you are in that camp of being a follower of Christ and you have not been mindful of the great salvation that He has done for you in Christ, that today would be the beginnings, the stirring, the spark of a revival, of a renewed relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you would do this in the hearts of your people. I pray that you would bring revival individually and corporately to us here at Heritage and it would spill over into family and friends and uh, others in our community and in our world. And I thank you for this and pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.